0: you turn with me to Psalm 43, Psalm 43. Entire chapter this morning, Psalm 43. And it reads, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Arguably the biggest paradox is a joyless Christian, a joyless Christian. Out of everyone in the world, Christians ought to be the most joyful. With the wealth of treasure that we have, we have more than everyone outside of Christ. That Christians have plenty of reasons to be the most joy-filled, walking human beings on this planet because of all that we have, that we should be filled of joy. Notice I didn't say happy, that we wouldn't be the happiest people because happiness is obviously dependent upon happenings or circumstances, but joyful, that having a joy that is grounded in God no matter the context you find yourself in, that this joy is not contingent upon the day, this joy is contingent upon God who never changes. And yet, we often find ourselves miserable we find ourselves saddened, depressed, worried, burdened. That's because we're not exempt from heartache. You're not exempt from it. And how we address the heartache in life, it does have profound impact upon your joy. That this heartache that you will have even now, if not yesterday, you'll have it tomorrow, metaphorically speaking. When it comes your way, how you address your heartache has profound implications upon your joy. This joy that should never change. Martin Lloyd-Jones, <clears throat> he lists various causes of spiritual depression. Like Why would a believer face spiritual depression? Some are taunts of unbelievers. Very psalm. He was overwhelmed by those, his opponents, the unjust man, the deceitful man. Taunts of believers can cause heartache and grief for us. We may have memories of better days and just the overwhelming trials of life, and we reflect upon better days. And when are those better days going to come back again? Maybe it's failure of God to act quickly upon our behalf. God did not respond in the way that I expected him to respond. So therefore, I'm left with unmet expectations. And my expectations that I do not see are weighing upon me. It could be attacks directly from ungodly or deceitful or wicked people. It could be physical conditions, health. It could even be attacks of Satan. Maybe there's no discernible reason. But I just feel down. And that happens. Or it could be simple unbelief. Whether it's depression, despair, heartache, you name it. This is not a new issue to us, I'm sure. It goes as far back as Cain. And just like it struck Cain, it still knocks on upon the door of the human soul today. That We're not excused from heartache or grief or even suffering, depression. These here are real struggles. And I realize that Real people struggle with these real issues. It's not something for us to gloss over and just to put a band-aid on. These are real issues that people deal with, and that we all deal with from time to time. But these real issues demand real answers. And where are these real answers going to be found for that aching soul? What do you do when your soul loses hope? What do you do? This psalm here is easily broken up into three stanzas for us, and so we don't need to recreate the will. There's three stanzas, which I want us to look through in three stages. Let's move through this psalm, just taking note of, of three stages of distress that should lead you to a deeper trust in God. Let's just work through this psalm 43, just note, taking note of three stages of distress that should lead you to a deeper trust in God. The first stage here is at the beginning, verses 1 and 2, is a cry for justice. A cry for justice. And before we move further, notice something about the beginning of the psalm. Do you notice something that's missing? That normally psalms have? It may say something on your Bible, a prayer for deliverance, but that's not inspired. That's what the editors placed in there for us. But there's no subscription there at the beginning of the psalm. There's a reason for that possibly. Psalm 43, if you read it, it sounds very similar to Psalm 42, the psalm before it. And in fact, there are phrases that are repeated in Psalm 42 that are also repeated in Psalm 43. For example, in Psalm 42, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Sound familiar? Verse 11 Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. It's repeated in Psalm 42 and also in Psalm 43. There are some who have postulated that Psalm 43 and Psalm 42 actually should never have been broken apart, but they're really the same psalm. That's that's a postulation, but I, I don't think that's necessarily likely. But what I do believe is Psalm 43 is connected to Psalm 42 that it's likely an epilogue or a conclusion to Psalm 42. That the psalmist here is continuing and almost reminiscing of this very truths he worked over in Psalm 42, and he's pouring out and continuing it as an epilogue, as an ending in Psalm 43. It's like a supplement to it. And so assuming that the authorship of Psalm 42 then would be the same for the same author of Psalm 43. So who wrote Psalm 42? It says it was a mascal of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were Levites, and these Levites were responsible for composing songs for Israel. And so, this, this same psalmist here is pouring out in Psalm 43. But more importantly, now, back in Psalm 43, notice as he begins this psalm. I don't know if you could hear it as we read it, but this psalmist is beside himself here. He's undone. It's almost like you with kids, they yell a lot. Scream a lot, but as a parent you know the the screams and the yells to pay attention to, right? You know when you hear that the certain blood curdling cry of, of a toddler or a child, that's the one you should go outside and look. Like in a sense here, this psalmist here is undone. He is crying out to God. He is burdened, he is overwhelmed, and he is crying out to God. He says in verse 1, vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me, God, from the unjust man, from the deceitful man. Like He is crying out to God. These verbs he uses, vindicate and plead, these are legal terms he's using here to vindicate him, in other words, pass judgment upon these wicked people, to plead my case, in other words, represent me, be my defender. He's asking God, would you be my judge, be my defender now? It implies for us his innocence in this, that he is overwhelmed by his opponents, that he feels the weight of unjust and deceitful people. I don't know about you, but we know there's many of reasons for us to be overwhelmed when we look at injustice. When we look at deceit, when we look at sin just plaguing our world, even today, and how much do we cry out against the injustice, and not just injustice in just society, what about the injustice, the unborn, the injustice of God's people, wicked rulers pursuing and going in their own sinful agendas? We just see the world just falling apart, and you too may cry out like the psalmist, Lord, Vindicate us. But he is feeling this. He's asking God, though, to judge rightly upon his behalf. We don't have much info in Psalm 42 or 43 about the specific location or the background of what is plaguing the soul of the psalmist right now. And I don't think it's necessarily important for us to understand. I mean, he could be, maybe it's before, in, or after exile. Maybe it's referring to a specific incident in the Old Testament he's reflecting upon. We don't know. But we know that he feels abandoned. Because look what he says in verse verse 2 You are the God of my strength. You are the God of my strength. But how does he follow that up? Why have you rejected me? He feels rejected. That this simple why here is connecting both thoughts. He knows God to be the God of his strength, but yet here he feels rejected by this very God. I know you to be God, but yet I feel rejected. I know you're a sovereign God, that you work in providence and all things in my life, but yet I feel like you're not there, God. I know you to be true, but why do I feel like you've forgotten me? I know you can heal, but why haven't you healed me? Why haven't you healed my relative? I, why haven't you changed my husband? Why haven't you changed my wife? Why do my kids still act that way? God, I know you to be a God who can do anything, but why do I feel like you're doing nothing? Does that sound like a familiar cry? He feels abandoned. If this is the case, if God is a strength, He struggles to to understand why God would reject him. And his distress is compounded by deep mourning. Because he asks after that, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? That this here is not just a simple day of mourning. He feels this continually. Lord, the the pain keeps coming back. Day after day, I feel this. This is continuous heartache. Now hear this, the psalmist knows that there is a God. But he doesn't feel it. He knows God is there, but he does not feel it. He uses why a few times in the psalm, actually. But before we go further, it's it's, it's not wrong to ask God why, right? It's not wrong to question God. Lord, I don't understand. But there is a difference between the irreverent, why God? How dare you do that? How dare you take him? Versus the genuine, God, why? Like, this hurts. Like, why, Lord? That there's a difference between these two whys. And the psalmist there is genuinely feeling just, why, Lord? Why do you allow this? This is not an unfamiliar why. even the world knows this why. When any heartache on the news happens, what's the first question? Why would God allow this? Why would God allow me to feel this way? Why would God do this to me? Why would he allow that to happen to me? But the sting hurts worse when it comes from someone who knows God and yet feels abandoned and alone. What do you do when you've experienced the glory and the greatness of God and then you feel as though he's left you in the dark? What do you do when when you've tasted of the goodness of God? And yet you feel he's left you dry. But before we go to the second stage here, let's jump to verse five. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance, the countenance, and my God. Now, you notice here a change. Because in verses 1 and 2, this psalmist is undone. But in verse 5, he's saying, why are you in despair? Oh, my soul, why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. You notice a change here? Something happened between verses 1 and 2 and verse 5. Because in verse 1, he's saying, Lord, why? But in verse 5, he's saying, whoa, soul, why are you in despair? Soul, are you tripping that's the literal hebrew right um like soul why are you in despair what, what's wrong with you Saul? like there's a change that happened here from verses one and two to verse five but now he's saying here Saul, what's wrong with you hope in god how do we get from god where are you to soul what's wrong with you how do we get from turmoil to hope he goes from one extreme to the other in order to answer that question here, the second stage here is the hinge on the door that swings it open to full lasting joy. So we must see, how did he get here? How did he get at a changed disposition here? It's at the second stage that a lot happens. Let's look at the second stage, a cry for help. A cry for help. Verse 3, oh, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Take note of the specific action he's begging God to do there in verse 3. What is he asking God to do? He says to send out. In other words, to dispatch Which implies for us here that he feels complete separation from God. He's at a place where he can't go directly to God right there. He's saying, no, Lord, send out your light and your truth. Come to me. It's almost like someone calling 911 in distress. I can't go to the police. So would you please send a police officer to me? I need help. And so he's asking God, would you send out your light and truth? Dispatch your truth to help me. And he asked, let them lead me. And the fact that he asked God to send out and to be led there, it implies he was not able to lead himself back to safety. He's asking God, send out and let them lead me. He can't do it in and of himself. He's begging and crying out to God for help. And here here is asking for light and for truth. This idea of light representing understanding. In other words, your word is a light into my path. He's asking for truth here, which represents a sureness, a trustworthiness of God in his word. He's asking, Lord, would you send out this light that guides me and this truth that will never fail me? Would you send that out and dispatch it to my need right now? I need to stand on something because I can't stand on my own. So he here cries out to God for help. Lord, just send it out. I'm unable. I'm lost. It's dark. I can't see. I'm overwhelmed. My emotions are just toiling within me. I'm spiraling out of control. I can't see rightly. Oh Lord, would you send out your light and your truth to me right now? That's where He's at. I remember one time I was talking to Matt Yoon last week about Hume Lake Camp. And I was a staff there several years ago. Um, not staff there. I was with my last church and we were going with our youth group. And. Um, there's a challenge they have. If you ever been to Hume Lake, it's like the last day, I think, or the last night. And it's the gauntlet challenge. And if you think about it, it's almost like American gladiators except on water. Um, but you're kind of working through an obstacle course. And by the end of the week, man, as, as an adult staff, I'm not like, like the kids, my body's already aching, right? Like I'm barely walking. Like I, I got Dr. Scholes in my shoes. I got Ben Gay smelling. around. Like it's, it's bad. And so by the end of the day, at the end of the week, they have the Gauntlet Challenge where basically you work through this obstacle course. And as you're working through it on water, so you're, you're maneuvering through water, you're trying to climb on things. Then they send people out to, like, take you out so you go in the water. So you're fighting against these other people. You're trying to work through. You're swimming. You're jumping. You're hurtling. You're flying. Like, it's, like, all these things. And it's just this whole obstacle course. And the goal is to get to the end. And then when you get to the end, they got someone there who's standing with this big old pole who's trying to knock you down. So you got to fight him. And so, like, it's It's exhausting. And so, of course, they want some of the staff to do it. And so I was elected to do this. And by the end of the week, already just worn out, just exhausted, I did the gauntlet challenge. And I remember I went through it. I worked through it. I don't even remember the timing. But I made decent timing. And I just remember just fighting through. And then, like, already by the time I got to the end, I just feel like, oh, my body's just cramping. I'm, like, I'm aching. And I got to him. And then I did it. I'm like, oh, I won. I beat him. I'm like, yes. Right? Like a little bit of my egos at play here because I got my students watching me. So, but I made it. I made it. But then let me tell you, after that point, I'm done there, and I am just winded. Like this is beyond just like, like running because like, you're fighting and swimming, and, and like my body's just aching. And so I go in the water now. I'm like maybe about 40, 50 yards away from shore. And so now it's done. Everyone's like, oh, yeah, they're cheering for you. And I'm sitting there in water, and I know I got to go and swim back to shore. And I'm like 40 yards out, and I'm looking, I'm like, if I swim one stroke, my whole body's going to cramp right now. And I could not move. They didn't give me a life jacket. I don't know why, but I could not move. And I remember thinking, like, I do not know what I'm going to do. I cannot move. And I felt too embarrassed to say, like, help, help, right? But I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, I do not know what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to go back. And so finally I'm just standing there and kind of just trying to play it off and just winded and just way down and exhausted. But you know what they did for me? they had someone who already was out there, a lifeguard come with a lifesaver and he sent, they sent out a lifesaver and I just grabbed on and they just pulled me back to shore. And I'm like, oh, if that lifesaver was not there, I wouldn't be here this morning, I'd be at the bottom of Hume Lake, okay? But they sent out help for me. I was just unable to swim at all and they sent out that lifesaver and just drew me back to shore. And drew me to safety. And here the psalmist finds himself just burdened. And he can't do anything. He feels overwhelmed. And he says, Lord, just send out your light and your truth. I can't. Lord, do what only you can do. But notice here. The end goal here is not just light and truth. He needs it. He's calling for it. But his end goal is not just light and truth. He wants something much more precious. He says in verses three and four that he wants to be led to God's holy hill, to his dwelling places. He wants to be around God, but even there, to the altar of God. What is it that the psalmist desires? Does he want religion? Does he want security? Does he want safety? We see here he's crying out for God to lead him to something much more precious. Which I think is the climax of the psalm. This is where it peaks. Where does he want? Look at verse 4. He says, I will go to the altar of God, but to where? I will go to God, my exceeding joy. What did the psalmist need? He needed He needed to be led to God. And not just God, he says. Not just God. He says, lead me to God, my exceeding joy. We can literally translate that. Lead me to God, the joy of my rejoicing, he says. In other words, the fullness of his rejoicing, of his joy, of his contentment, of his strength is found in God. You take me and lead me to your dwelling places, to the altar, and then I will see God, my joy, the joy of my rejoicing. That he wants his all satisfying treasure. He wants God. There's been a change in this psalmist's heart. There's been a change of heart now. And why? How did he change? What happened? He encountered God. See, his feelings no longer ruled his heart. His feelings no longer ruled his heart. He was no longer looking at the oppression of the enemy, the unjust and deceitful man, the the weightiness of his problems, the burden of his grief. He was no longer looking at there. He was no longer depending upon his feelings. He knew he needed to see truth, and that was found in his God. And what's the outcome of this? It's nothing but praise. Because look how he ends it in verse 4. He says that I will then praise you on the lyre, O God, my God. That this God is my God. He first encountered God and expressed that joy, expressed that encounter with rejoicing. You notice here, theology informed his praise. That he didn't truly praise until he truly saw God in his circumstance which leads us to the final cry in verse 5, a third, a third stage, a cry of hope. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Now notice how he started this psalm, right? He, he said why in verses 1 and 2, right? Did he not use why in verse, in verse 2, excuse me, uh, verse 2, why, why God? But now he's using why again. He's asking questions, but what's different about this questioning in verse 5 than it's different in verse 2? In verse 2, he's asking, God, why are you allowing this? Why, why is this happening? But now in verse 5, who is he questioning? His soul, his self. He's saying, soul, wait, soul, why are you downcast? Why are you in despair? He's now addressing himself. He's talking to himself. Soul, why are you melting away? Why are you unsteady and in turmoil within me? But now he's giving himself a command. He's he's commanding himself. Before he was commanding God, oh, send out your light. Oh, help me. That's not wrong. But now he's commanding his soul to hope in God. I want you to notice here that he preaches to himself to redirect his hope. He preaches to himself to redirect his hope from his circumstance to God. Saul, what's wrong? Hope in God. And notice here, at this point now, he doesn't ask God to change his circumstance, right? Does he ask God now, would you change this? He's now asking his soul, no, 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 soul, something's wrong. You got to hope in God, soul. This is the only command he utters in this verse, hope in God, soul, hope in God. And he's commanding his soul to wait, which is significant because he said he's going to encounter God. He's not at the temple yet. But then he says that I shall again praise him the help of my countenance countenance and my God. That he knows he's anticipating and waiting for the time when he know he will go to the temple and encounter the God of his joy. He's looking for that in hope and not this hope that is his questioning, like maybe God will come through. Maybe God's promises will come through. But no, he says, I will hope in God, literally wait in God, but this is not just wait that's maybe going to happen. This hope here is secure and steady on God, on his character. So this hope is not a wish. Like maybe God will come through. Let's cross our fingers. But no, no. He is certain that God will come through because his eye is now on God. A sure and steady assurance that God will be who he said he will be. That though his circumstance does not change and has not changed, he's not hoping in that anymore, but rather now he is hoping on God, and he's saying, soul, you hope on God, God's character. It's like a picture of Micah chapter 7, verse 7, but as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me, Micah says, That he knows with certainty that God will be who he said he will be. He's no longer looking and evaluating his life through the lens of his heartache. He is now evaluating his life through the lens of God's truth. Is God who he said he is? That's really the rub at times. Is God really who he said he is? Will he give me what he promised to give me? Will I trust in that? That really is the rub at times because many times the weight and grief weigh so much more than the truth of who God is. And there be times when all we can say is, Lord, help and send out. The antidote for all all spiritual distress or despair, the antidote for all distress and, and despair, it's to hope in God. Hope in God. That really is the answer. And we hear that, and it sounds too simple. It sounds too simple. Let's ask the question. Let me ask of your soul. Maybe you're hurting this morning, but let me ask of your soul. Is God enough? Is God enough? The antidote is to hope in God as we go further, I really want to put some legs on this. Is how do we hope in God? How do we hope in God? Isn't that the hurdle? I know this to be intellectually true, but how do I hope in God? What does this look like? Let's say number one is to prayerfully identify the source of your despair. Prayerfully identify the source of your despair. Many times our heartache is because of It could be people. Maybe it is opposition like the psalmist. Maybe it's someone who's not living up to your expectations. Someone who is hurting you. It could be things, possessions, losing them. It could be your current life, trials, just hard day after day. Life is hard, is it not? A current life could be weighing us down. But really, you want to prayerfully identify the source, Like, what is weighing me down? Like, is it the psalmist right here? Lord, I feel the weight of my enemies. Lord, I feel the weight of of life. I feel the weight of pressures. What is weighing me down? We must identify this. Like I said, at times, despair, depression could be an attack of the enemy. And maybe there is no discernible source. But if it truly is an attack of the enemy... The only antidote there is God. But Regardless here, you identify that. And secondly, I don't think it'd be wrong at all for us. Now, after we identify, but secondly here, I think it'd be really right for us to do what the psalmist does here. Because as he is overwhelmed and burdened by his circumstance, what does this psalmist do in realizing his weakness? He cries out to God. That there's nothing wrong for us to pray and ask God to send out your light and your truth. Lord, I do feel like I'm spiraling right now. I can't make sense of my emotions. I can't make sense of anything right now. All I can make sense of is that you are a God who's true. And so, Lord, as you send out your light and your truth, that we should ask God to help. But also here, take delight that his promise or his presence is not a conditional promise for us. That God's presence is not a conditional promise. Though you may may experience hardship like the psalmist, you probably will experience hardship like him. But here is the rub. The psalmist never experienced communion with God that you have. Do you think about that? That you may experience hardship like him, but he didn't experience the communion of God that you have. Because you notice here, where did the psalmist go to encounter God? We know the answer, hope in God, hope in God, hope in God. But let's ask the question. Where did the psalmist encounter God? Where? Verse 4, verse 4, I will go to the altar of God. And then he says, "My God of my rejoicing." So where did he go to encounter God? He went to the altar. He went to the altar. You know why did he go to the altar? Like, what's what's so special about the altar? The altar here, especially in the Old Testament, this is where the saints worshiped God. That if they wanted to, that the pinnacle of worship, where would the Old, Old Testament saints go? They went to the altar. I mean, you could have an altar without a temple, but you couldn't have a temple without an altar. Like, the altar was just... Was primal, it was primal, it was supreme in their Old Testament worship. That they needed an altar because the altar was where they would have made sacrifices. An altar was where they received reconciliation and forgiveness from God. The altar is where they, God would smell the aroma he'd be pleased with their worship. That is where the pinnacle of their worship was, was at the altar. So he went to the altar of God. He wanted to be led to his altar so he can encounter God and feel his presence in a real way. But for us, we don't have an altar. We don't have an altar. We don't need an altar. And why is that? Because Christ was a supreme sacrifice for us. That our reconciliation, our relationship, our communion with God is based upon Christ That he is our sacrifice. He is our reconciliation. So for him to go to God, he had to go to the altar to find God and to see God, and rightly so. But for us saints, we don't have to go anywhere. But rather, God lives within you. That because what Christ has done, there is no separation from God. And though you may feel it, you have to go back to truth of what is true because God said he is in you. And his spirit there put the direct deposit upon you. That God is in you. That we don't need an altar because the Lord Jesus Christ became our sacrifice. The New Testament believer no longer travels to a location to meet God. That we don't travel anywhere to meet God. But we can encounter God because he's living within us. So in one sense, we will never, ever feel the separation from God that the psalmist feels. Do you realize that? that you will never feel the separation from God that this psalmist feels. Why? Because if this is true of God's word, he is living, dwelling within you. The light of the world, the truth is engraved upon our hearts. He is within us. So we should rightly so, in our time of despair, we cry out to God, Lord, send out your light and truth, but realize his light and truth is embodied and dwelling within us. We beseech our Savior so that may I understand your truth right now. Can I see the truth of your beauty, the truth of your glory? Lord, open my eyes to see what is true because I am believing more in my emotions than I'm believing truth right now. Lord, would you cry out, Lord, cry out to the Lord. Lord, would you help me to see your truth in a way I've never understood it before. That though this burden is really heavy, I know you to be a God who is sufficient so in one way, cry out to this God. Cry out for God to send out his truth and light in a way that opens our eyes to see them in a way we've never seen it before. Thirdly, how do we hope in God? Encourage yourself. Encourage yourself. It sounds weird, but, but notice here. There are times when you will be the only counselor in the room. There are times When you will be overwhelmed and you are the only counselor in the room? And what will you do? Will you allow yourself to talk to you or will you talk to yourself? Will you allow your emotions to dictate your heart or will you speak to your emotions? There are times when you must encourage yourself. You must preach to yourself. Not only realize this truth, but then you speak truth and encourage yourself to say, soul, what is going on here? Hope in God. Soul, what is true? That God promises peace that surpasses understanding. Soul, you have to understand here that God says he will never leave me nor forsake me. Soul, you must have to understand that nothing will separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That death, nor angels, nor demons, nor nothing will separate me. Soul, what are you believing? You must believe this. You must encourage yourself. There may be times of despair where you must encourage yourself. That you have to speak truth to yourself. So, will you listen to your emotions, listen to your thoughts, or will you speak truth to yourself? Will you encourage yourself? Number four is you don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. We feel alone at times. Maybe the burden does seem like too much, things won't change. I can't find ever freedom ever. I won't be free from this. I am overwhelmed. My spouse will never change. My work situation is going to get harder. It feels alone. And we're so easily blinded of God's promises and despair that the presence of God does seem far off. But God's presence is not mysterious. It's not subjective. It's objective. God's presence is an objective truth. And yes, you may feel Him, his intimacy at times closer than others, so to that degree it's subjective, but all the time it's an objective truth that God is present. Our facts, the facts, must overcome our feelings. The presence of God is realizing really that God is already present within you. Like that's, that's the burden, is understanding there, the hurdle, that's the, bur- the hurdle, is understanding that, that God is already present within you. Because our feelings drive us sometimes to a point where we are saddened in despair, But what do we do with that? Will I believe and cling to my feelings that, yes, this day is overwhelming. I feel so frustrated and I'm just in my own thoughts and emotions. I am spiraling out. Am I going to believe that that's the only hope for me now? Or am I going to speak to my soul and say, soul, this is truth. And even more, I'm not going to believe what I think is true. I'm going to believe what I know is true about God. We can't trust our feelings. Our feelings will lie to you time after time after time. Because our biggest, our biggest problem is not the problem. You realize that? Our biggest problem is not the problem. Our biggest problem is we've forgotten the face of Christ and his goodness. That's our problem, is that we've forgotten the goodness of God. If he calls God the, the joy of his rejoicing here, he's not lying. He knows that to be true. But oftentimes when we're crying out about the circumstance, About our problems, we have forgotten that God is the joy of my rejoicing. Our biggest problem is not the problem, it's that I've forgotten the goodness of Christ. We don't have time to comprehensively work through all of these aches. And these are real aches, but I want to at least take note of this. In Psalm 43, God didn't change his circumstance God didn't cast judgment at that time upon the unjust and deceitful man. He didn't change the psalmist's circumstance; they didn't go away. You notice that, right? Like his circumstance never changed, but what did change? The psalmist. His circumstance never changed, but what changed? The psalmist. That he was changed to this. The psalmist went from mourning in the oppression of the enemy to seeing that God is the unchanging God and that he is enough. The psalmist had to change. And there will be times when God does change the circumstance. But if our hope is in that, we're going to always be disheartened. So if you are failing to have joy, may I suggest that your focus may be more on your situation than on God. Now, some of you will hear this, and I think some of you will hear this and, and hear it as this. you hear it as, okay, I need to have hope and ignore my problems. All right, okay, I understand this, hope in God. Yes, I've heard this. Okay, I'm good, so I'm going to hope in God, even though things won't change, but I'm still going to feel miserable. But okay, it's hope in God. Yeah, hope in God. Like, some of you hear that and will just say, okay, I just need to do that. But if we view it as hope in God, ignore my problems, still feel miserable, and have a smile on my face, do you realize what's happening there is you're not hoping in God, you're still hoping in the outcome of your circumstance. Like, we're still actually hoping on, okay, I'm gonna hope in God, but really I'm gonna feel miserable because I'm really hoping that this will change. I'm really hoping for this outcome. I'm really hoping for this breakthrough. I'm really hoping for that. I'm still really hoping this. So we say this, I understand this, and we hear it that way, but not really really realizing that we're still hoping in the outcome of the, the circumstance. I'm still hoping things will get better. And really, that's not hope in God. That is not hope in God. That's still hope in God, and it'll be even better if God changes it. Oh. But is that really finding God to be the joy of your rejoicing? Because look here, this is not a band-aid approach. Like you're sad, read the Bible and pray. That is not a band-aid approach. This is a triple bypass operation here. Because the problem here is that there's blockage here that is blocking our heart from seeing the goodness of God so much so that the trials are strangling us because we can't see it because we're so consumed with what I want right now. I just need to feel happy. I need to feel this is going to be okay. I need to feel this is going to change. That's blocking things. So we don't just put a band on it. We need to realize, what am I looking at? And God, open my eyes to see truth in this and let me find joy in you. That's the true hope. It may be that God wants to change you more than your circumstance. He may want to work on you more than he wants to change anything in your life. Romans five verse three and four it says that affliction produces endurance, and endurance pro- produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. How do I get hope? Oh, the school of affliction. The school of affliction. That God is doing many things that you will not understand, but all we can understand and see clearly as is that God is my joy. He is my reason for rejoicing, that I will rejoice in his character, in his attributes, in his works, in his son, in the spirit. I will rejoice in that. It's true. And fifthly, I'm going to add this. You must act with obedience. Act with obedience. There may be times when you may feel overwhelmed, that you don't feel like doing anything. But can I just say this? If we rely on our emotions, do not let that stop you from acting and doing what you should do. There are people who, if, if you're overwhelmed, it's like, I'm, I've just been in bed all day, I can't get out of bed. That may be true. It may be hurt. It may be hard. These are real things, real issues that people walk through. But sometimes we go to truth and yet we still lay in bed. And there's a reality here is that if Paul, like we read earlier, calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling for this God who's working in us to work in the will for his good pleasure, we can't seek to apply these truths to our heart and not seek to put our feet to work. But there may be days when it may be hard when the only thing you're going to seek to do is I'm just going to do one load of laundry today and I'm going to do that by God's help. I'm going to rely upon God just to do this one chore. I'm going to rely upon God just to visit this one friend today, to make one phone call and encourage someone else. I'm going to be simple and have simple acts of obedience and do what God has called me to do in his own strength. I'm not going to build a pyramid today, but I'm going to put one block up there by God's help because I believe God to be true, that he will sustain me to walk to the kitchen, to do this chore, to trust in him just for today. We have to act You have to act on this truth. There may be times as well with, again, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but hidden sin is an issue of of despair and depression for people. There are sins that you are struggling with and no one knows, and that will weigh you down. There could be prior sin that you have kept to yourself and you said you're going to go to your grave with, and that could be weighing you down. And I want to also say there may be even cases where if you have no joy, And maybe God is not your rejoicing, that you don't find joy in Christ. It could very well be that you have not found Christ in His glory. That you know about this God of joy, but you have never never experienced Him. That He isn't joy to you. That you find hope more in things of this world. That could be you. That if you've never found joy in Christ, if He's never sustained you, if He's not your true joy of rejoicing, Ask yourself, do you know this Jesus? Is he really your joy? Or are we just saying the words? Is Jesus truly your treasure? Regardless, we don't ever want to face despair alone. It's the greatest lie is to walk through this alone, to be sad alone. It's the greatest lie to cover it up and to say, I can do this by myself. You need the people of God. You need the brothers and sisters. Hudson Taylor, <clears throat> he was a British missionary born in the 1800s. He died in 1905, but he spent 51 years in China for the gospel. 51 years, and he spent ten voyages. To, he he uh, did ten voyages to China, and that amounted to about four to five years on water because right? he didn't have an airplane. It's four to five years on a boat, and it's not like a cruise line. Like, this, is, this, is, this is boats. He spent been four to five years on water, just getting there and back. And There's one account in his biography. His son Samuel died in January. And then in July, Maria gave birth to a son Noel, who died two weeks later. And then the crown hid sorrows. On July 23rd, Maria, his wife, died of cholera. Cholera. And so in just this one year, he went from death to death to even losing his own wife. He felt alone. He details how he was just burdened and overwhelmed by grief. And he was beside himself too. And then he notes here, he says that when my agony of soul was at its height, a sentence in a letter from Dear McCarthy, who's another missionary, was used to remove the scale of my eyes And the Spirit of God revealed to me the truth of our oneness with Jesus as I had never known it before. Although he was overwhelmed and burdened by just death and plagues, he said it was just this one sentence he read from a letter from this other missionary that God used to open his eyes to see the oneness of Jesus like he had never seen it and known it and experienced it before. You see what happened? What changed for him? he saw God. He encountered God like he never had before. That when he encountered this truth, God used it to take the scales off his eyes to see Jesus more truly, more gloriously like he had never seen him before. And that changed. That when we encounter Christ, 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 it changes. It's that when we're so steeped in the storm, The waves seem so strong and powerful. The wind is just blinding my eyes. But what we need to do is to see Jesus in his beauty and his glory. And God, by the power of his spirit, will open our eyes to see his sufficiency in ways that we have never seen him before. And God, in his goodness and his love for you, wants to place you in even times of despair and distress so that you will see how he is more glorious than anything else here on earth. So whatever happens, come with me. We don't know what God is doing, but what we need to do is to see the beauty of Jesus like you had never seen him before. Oh Lord, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me to your holy hill, to your dwelling places, to the altar of God, and I will see God the joy of my rejoicing. Rejoice and hope in God, soul. Hope in God. Let's pray. Father, we need this truth. And you have not excused us from suffering. You have promised us suffering. You have promised us pain. And Lord, we don't know where this world is going. We don't know what tomorrow holds for us. We don't know all that you have for us. But one thing we know is true is that you are God and you never change. So, Lord, would you purify our hearts this morning in this truth in a way that we have never seen it before. In Jesus' name, amen.